Hi, my name is Andrew Yi. I am the cellist of the Ataka Quartet, uh, founder of Chamber Queer, and just a regular old cellist. I am surprised you didn't say Grammy-winning <laughs> string quartet or cellist. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Grammy-winning. That has to. That's gonna. It's one of those things that'll precede my name for for probably forever. Yeah. Yeah, which is pretty amazing. But that's one of the exciting things that's happened since I last saw you. But let me begin by asking you how you got into the cello. I got into the cello in.、Uh, My public school system in Fairfax County, Virginia, and I,、um, I was in, I don't know, my homeroom class, and、uh, the strings teacher came around to show the classroom the instruments, and she was a violinist, and she played something really beautiful on the violin, you know, and then、um, she played something really beautiful on the viola.、Uh, all right, a little bit lower. And、uh, then when it got to the cello, she was not a very good cellist, and so all she could play was the theme from Jaws. <laughs> and、uh, yeah, I knew that that had to be my instrument, and I, I raised my hand and I, I was like, "Give me the form," you know, a little ten-year-old, like, "Give me the <laughs> give me the proper forms to fill out," and I that'll that'll be my instrument. Yeah, ten is not that young to start a cello. Oh, playing cello. Did you take to it immediately? I think the overarching story of my of my early、uh, experience with the cello、um, was that of of joy of being around the instrument.、Um, so, you know, I wasn't playing Dvorak when I was thirteen, <laughs>、um, <laughs> but you know, I didn't suck. I, I, I was okay. I actually no, I take that back. I sucked for a long time, as everyone does. But I think it was because I loved to play the cello. Because、um, every time I picked up the cello to practice, it was because I wanted to. My my parents didn't didn't uh, uh, sort of、uh, preemptively sort of like、uh, try to get me to to play an instrument. It was something that was always fueled from、um, my desire to to do it. So. Um, yeah, I took to it、uh, in the way that、um, it just fascinated me from from early on. Just what sounds could I make, and and that by just having just sitting by the instrument and either having some sheet music or just enough time to figure it out, I could make music that I'd heard before.、Um, and that was that act of creation was not dissimilar from you know drawing a picture, and then there was a dinosaur there. You know, it would be you know I, I would. You know, pick up the cello, and then three hours later, a sort of crummy version of the Jurassic Park theme song would <laughs> would come out of it, and that 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 was、uh, that was just really fun. So movies had a lot to do with this in your life. Oh my God! Yes, yeah. Fantasia two thousand still is is sort of I think the main reason I'm a I'm a musician at all. Would you have listened to any popular rock or pop songs that? You would have been that would have connected you to the cello, or was it mainly classical music back then? Yeah, I remember after after learning the Jaws theme song. I remember my brother Ken.、Uh, 
he he taught me the cello line of a Smashing Pumpkin song that uh that I obsessed over for a while just went boom 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 and I just played I played that bass line over and over and over again and uh you know I would put on I would put on the record and play along with it and you know until it changed and uh which case I threw up my hands and just said well that's that's as far as I can go but um yeah I mean I um I listened to whatever was on the radio. Um, but by the time, by the time I was of, you know, back then, you know, uh, CD buying age, I, I had sort of really taken to classical music. And so, um, I wanted to know what people were doing. You know, um, I wanted to know what Yo-Yo Ma was doing. I wanted to know what people in Europe were doing. You know, I wanted, you know, like that, that, that was the kind of, that was what I got obsessed with. Um, by the time I was in middle school and high school, and it wasn't until much later that I really took to all different types of music and and became a lot more curious. Uh, you know, I think probably even after I was I went to went to school. At what point did you decide that you wanted to pursue this seriously? Um, I think I think it was somewhere around when I was when I was like fifteen or sixteen, and I I remember I was at a a concert at Peabody and there was a violinist playing a violin concerto. I can't remember what the piece was um, or who the violinist was, but if somebody <laughs> wants to do some sleuthing for me, that would, that would mean a lot to me. Uh, but she just looked like she was having so much fun playing this concerto. And I, I mean, no, disrespect to any musicians I saw before her, but I wasn't used to seeing classical musicians having fun, mm. you know, to, to see someone doing the thing that I did, um, but better. And they were having fun. And I remember just like turning to my dad and saying like, you can do that. <laughs> like, that's a, that's allowed. And he's like, I guess. And, um, <laughs> and I was like, well, I want to do that, you know, and I, I remember just, and that was the point that I think I really put my head down and um, just went all out trying to, to, to get to the point that I could at least sort of appear like I was as competent as other people who were getting into conservatories uh, were. And uh, so that, yeah, that's sort of where it began. But you must have been good. I mean, the fact that you wound up in Juilliard means that you had to be good, no? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm not saying I pulled the the wool over any <laughs> any uh, <laughs> of the the teachers at Juilliard's eyes. Uh, yeah, I, I I was good. I I could play the cello, um, um, and uh, I had a great teacher in high school, Lauren Stevenson from the National Symphony, and he he really he really like got me into shape um kind of kind of quickly and you know I still to this day sort of think back to so what I learned from him and yeah I but you know when I got to Juilliard I was I was pretty rough around the edges you know I um you know I didn't I you know I still had a lot of gaps of of knowledge about about the geography of the instrument and um and and what kinds of music were out was out there and and um 
and you know, you know, as a kid, everyone's everyone's a little everyone's a little has some shortcomings as a kid. But um yeah, I I'm not saying that that I, I wasn't good. I just uh it just took it just took some last minute cram sessions to get there. So that's all. When you're when you're applying for Juilliard or when you decide that you want to go to Juilliard, and I don't know how many other places you would think you're going, but do you know what you want to be? Are you do you know you want to be a cellist in an orchestra or a solo performer or a cellist in a string quartet? Like do you have that in mind already? Or it's an open book and you will do anything? I mean, I think it's um it's I mean, first of all, it's bananas to me that uh, any decision I made when I was 16 uh, has any bearing on what I'm doing for a living today. Um, what a bizarre, bizarre thing. Um, so, no, I think I think I went into school saying, "Oh, you know, I'll 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 probably play in orchestras to to pay the bills." But what I really want to do is, you know, play like Dvorak concerto and and things like that. And you know, I remember. Um, you know, around 2000, 2001, before I went to school, hearing that um, chamber music was just not a a path that was feasible to go down. You know, there was there was the Juilliard Quartet, there was the Guarneri Quartet. You know, there was some young guns like the St. Lawrence and the Brentano, but chamber music was kind of full. <laughs> That was that was it. You know, you can play it for fun. It's good to know the Beethoven quartets, but um, but you can't you can't make a living. And so don't don't really go for it. And I remember I think it was in my either the end of my first year or the beginning of my second year. My friend Mac, I was hanging out with my friend Maxine with uh, Amy from from my quartet. And we were saying, man, quartet is fun. Like too bad. Too bad you can't do it as a career. And Maxine was like, uh, yeah, you can. <laughs> like, just do it. And we're like, what? <laughs> and uh, okay. You know, and, and if that was the first time that I ever uh, really allowed myself to to imagine what what life as a cheering musician would look like, you know, uh, you know, permission from a from a third year student at Juilliard, you know, was was such a was such an uh such weight off of my shoulders at that point i'm curious as to who might have told you that it wasn't a possibility well how you got that notion in your head well i mean i i mean i feel i i mean listen i get it i get it now like as you know a full-on adult but there were i feel like so many adults along the way when i was about to go uh, into music who tried to tell me not to do it <laughs> to, to tell me it was a mistake. You know, I remember one of, one of the, I, I can't remember which teacher it was. I think it was either a band teacher or a guitar teacher from my high school who, who asked if he could talk to me, which was strange because I, I hadn't been in any of his classes. Um, but he took me into his office and he said, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go to, don't go to a conservatory, like go like get a, get an education, do something else. And that, that kind of, I'd, I had heard like rumblings of that from a lot of adults about how being a musician is a bad idea. Um, it'll ruin your life. And, um, 
and you shouldn't do it. And so, and, you know, I think, I think they had good intentions, but, you know, but, you know, and I was also a teenager, so I was like, shut up. <laughs> like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do it, you know? And um, I also do think that the chamber music landscape was different in the, the sort of around the millennium, around the, around the, that change of time. I do think there was a smaller, a smaller, more compact chamber music scene that was a little harder to break into. I think that somewhere in the past uh, 10 years or so, um, there has been this explosion of, of incredible string quartets. Uh, I mean, chamber groups in general, but, but mostly string quartets that have really changed the landscape of what classical music looks like. It's not just going to your hometown orchestra um, and, you know, seeing, you know, a sort of Smetna overture and then a Brahms violin concerto and then a, and then a Beethoven symphony, you know, once a month, it, it, it like, you know, you got like the Jack come Jack quartet coming to town for, for a concert. And then you have us, and then you have, you know, just, you know, all, all sorts of opportunities to hear different quartets do what, what they love and, and what they do best. And, and there are like little, either small or large differences in what people present. It's not like the, the idea of a balanced quartet program um, is becoming more and more of a anomaly, you know, like this, this sense of um, much like the orchestra concert, you know, like a Haydn quartet than a Bartok quartet and then finishing it off with uh, Dvorak American is um, you don't, you don't, you don't see that nearly as much as you did back in uh, 2000, which, which um, is really exciting to me that, that, that you can get this, this really, um, you can get a very different experience going to any different quartet show, uh, which is so fun, infinite possibilities. Has, has the audience changed? Has it grown? Like if there are more opportunities, does that automatically mean that there are more, a bigger audience base to work with? I mean, I think so. I mean, especially as as the the idea of what um, what music is. And I mean, and I mean, you can go you can go and try to define classical music, but the the longer we stay together, the the less we rely on on that umbrella term to dictate what we put on a program. You know, um, for for us, I think an unofficial credo for for the Ataka Quartet in the past maybe like five or six years has been just sort of music is music. And so if we like something and there's something we can present as the four of us and we really believe in it, it goes on a program. And so I think, you know, we have an album of electronic music that's coming out in July and, um, and we're going to be playing most of that, if not all of that, at uh, Celebrate Brooklyn this year. And so because we're branching out into a different genre for, for this album, I, you know, we have the chance to, to have a new audience. And I think, I think younger people are, are becoming more and more curious about, about classical music. And, and I I think that it's um, because classical, the idea of what classical music is, is growing and it's not as, um, 
as strict and small as it, as it once was. So if we go back to time when you believed that maybe classical music or being in a quartet wasn't a viable future, and then realizing that maybe it is, we're talking early 2000s, 2002, 2003, that type of, around right. that area, yeah. right? So when you all of a sudden realized that this is possible, what did you think that possibility was? Do you have any idea what it could be? I think it changed um, all the time. You know, I think when when we started, um, we were very much uh, sort of Juilliard Quartet clone, which is, they're an amazing quartet to be a clone of, you know? Um, but, you know, and then, you know, we had different phases, you know, uh, there was a, there's a phase of, of really intense uh, Guaneri worship. And there's a, there was a phase of really intense Artemis quartet worship. And I think that for a while, I think we were trying to figure out <laughs> which other major quartet we wanted to be, you know, you know, St. Lawrence or Brentano or, and I think it took going through all of those and, and foraging all of those sounds, you know, you know, to be like, oh, like on this chord, can, can it, can we have, you know, we have a, a, a style of last note that we call Artemis, um, that we all just know, you know, and, um, and, you know, if there's like this long soaring, like vocal phrase, we'll be like, let's make that a little bit more Steinhardt, you know, from the Guaneri Quartet or, or maybe there's like a little quirky moment that, that will, that will go into like a little Brentano zone or something. But, but because we have accumulated all these sounds and we have a library, a vast library of all these sounds, I think once we got busier and, you know, we had less time to sort of sit around and say, who are we going to copy? And we just had to, you know, we had two rehearsals and then a big show. Uh, there's no time to figure out who you're going to copy. You just have to go out as yourself and, um, and, and just use the things that you found. And so I think that was, I sort of lost track of what your question was, but, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I think that, um, yeah, there is a sense of, of what, what I understood my, my musical life could be in cherry music changed constantly every every couple of years you know i presume that because you went to juilliard and because i think you were taught by joel krosnick um then thinking that maybe following the path of the juilliard string quartet makes sense hmm. but at what point do you decide or do you think that the ataka has its own sound and at what point do you think you you might have attained that or have you attained that yeah, I think um, a huge part of that was our project, the '68, where we did where we did the the complete string quartets of uh, Haydn. We played all '68 quartets over the course of five years, and um, it was I think it was that sort of intimate relationship with with Haydn as a human that. Um, you know, and, and that was the case where, where we would, you know, we, we were, we were playing, um, you know, a regular concert season on top of doing this really huge project where we would play, you know, close to 15 to 20 Haydn quartets in the season. And, and so when it came to 
to about a week or two before the show, we would go deep into Haydn's zone and we would, we would have um, three or four Haydn quartets. We had to learn really quickly. And I, and I think this goes back to what I was saying before about not really having time to figure out who you're copying. We just had a, a, a sound for Haydn that, you know, was a hybrid of historically informed, but also with um, just how we sort of showed up in our street clothes because we didn't have time to really make decisions about every phrase. It was, um, we just sort of had to play the way we felt. And there was a lot of um, uh, interpretive uh, improvisation that happened in those shows that was unlike any of the other rep that we were doing. Um, that that at any point you could, like taking a repeat was always was always a hoot <laughs> uh, in those shows because uh, we would always like one of us would always try to make another person laugh <laughs> or or try to trip them up or 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 get them to do something they had never done before that was that was part of what the 68 was and it was this this opportunity to to play like in the non you know in the non instrumental term uh play um that was unlike any other music we were playing so i think there's this sense of of extreme joy and extreme purity that I think became uh, a huge part of what our sound has become. And I think that we used that sound to when we play uh, Caroline Shaw's music. And that was the album that, that won us the Grammy. And uh, because I think she has a lot in common with Haydn in terms of their sense of humor and their understanding of, of what a string instrument can do and, and how a string instrument sounds best. And I think that her music has also really, inf really sort of shaped also our sound for um, the past five to 10 years. I was just reading about her and, and in this little bio, it said her favorite color is yellow, which kind of surprised me because the piece that you won was called orange, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> right. I I was surprised by that. But anyways, I also remember when we met in 2013, I believe, you had told me that most people who start in string quartets sound horrible for the longest time. Mm. And it really struck me because I, I guess it's true with anything, but I've been fortunate to work with really good string quartets. And so I've never really seen a bad string quartet. Mm. But at what point did you know, because you started, at, I guess you started Ataka in 2003, at what point did you think, we're good? Like, at what point did you feel that? Hmm. I mean, I think it was flashes of, of that. You know, I remember the first recording we made on a, on a, what were those called? Mini disc. We made a, like a little mini disc recording with a tiny little Zoom mic so right. that we could send into, to the fish off competition. I remember. And, uh, you know, we'd only been together for maybe six months when we made that. And I remember there was a moment in a in a Mendelssohn quartet, Opus 13, that, that where we sounded like a we sounded like a good quartet. You know, there were you know everything else sounded like what we had gone you know into with you know with all of our phrasing, with all of our ideas, and and 
but there was this moment that it snapped together. And I remember thinking, Oh, whoa, like, that's cool. You know? And, and I think it was just those moments, you know, not any one particular moment, but, but, um, you know, being on stage, maybe playing a late Beethoven quartet and, um, getting lost in a, in like the slow movement of 132, you know, and, and suddenly being transported to a different place and, and then leaving stage and just, just weeping uncontrollably like that, those moments. And as well as moments where people I trusted said nice things about us, you know, Anner Bilsma said he liked our Haydn and, you know, and uh, Misha Maisky said nice things about us. And, you know, John Adams, said very nice things about us you know all of these like when your heroes say nice things it it means a lot but yeah i don't think there was there was any particular moment where i said um like damn we 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 got it (laughs) (laughs) and i guess you never do but there must be a point where you look back and go my god we've come a long way oh yeah i mean we're planning our 20th anniversary you know like it that it's nuts it doesn't feel like it's um, like it's possible. And we've gone through, we've gone through so many different times as a quartet and, um, and it, you know, I, it, I don't even, I, I don't even remember the person I was when we, when we started the quartet. It, it's such a, such a different time. Um, and so when we met, it was at the BAMP International String Quartet Competition. I presume, and you, I know you guys have entered a number of them, and you won a couple of them, I believe. Mm-hmm. What's how important is a string quartet competition to the life or to the existence of a string quartet? I think it depends. <laughs> there, there are. I think it used to be essential. Like if you didn't win an international competition uh, you weren't gonna last that was just that was it you know you needed to have one and that's why we did them because because it's just uh it's the easiest it's the easiest way of of ha- of making people trust you when you say you're going to put on a good show you know it's not unlike maybe like the the Michelin guide for restaurants. You know, <laughs> right. if if it has a Michelin star, like you can go to the meal not wondering if your food is going to come out tasty. <laughs> and so that that worry, you know, like when you walk into a burger place you've never been, uh, you know, and you you know, you're like I hope this is good. You know, and but it's but the burger has to change your mind in order for for uh for it to blow you away versus if it wins best burger in the city you go in being like I can't wait to eat this burger <laughs> you know and i think that that that's what that that's what the quartet competitions are it's like it's that like best burger in the city except it's best string quartet best string quartet uh of of this particular year so how do you how do you deal with it when you don't win and how do you deal with it when you do win? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, losing sucks. Losing sucks a lot. And, but as, 
as much as it means to us when we lose, I don't think most most people are going to remember who lost a competition. Right. You know, and and do you get a sense of why you lost? Wait, why you didn't win? We didn't win because uh, the yeah the people who were judging we didn't do the their you know their thing and you know the older I get the the more I realize that everyone has very different tastes every single person in our in my quartet has very very different tastes in what they think a good quartet is you know and and what kind of music we listen to so. Uh, you know, even just coming up with um, like an album title or something like that for the quartet is hard, you know, right. like having four different opinions. So, so they're just, everybody's just doing their best when they're, when they're judging uh, competitions, but um, yeah, it's humans. And um, uh, I think, you know, for some people, for some people we were great and for some people, you know, not so great. So, I mean, if you get the right, the right people like on the panel who just happen to like what you're putting out, I mean, you're, you're lucky. Uh, and we had that a few times. Yeah. Which is, which must be an amazing feeling. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it's a great feeling. Um, and at the same time, you know, you can feel great about it, but also understand that, that, the, you know, it would it would only be the difference of having one different person on the panel that where that where you didn't win it, you know, and then you could easily be like, ah, it just wasn't my day. Um, and so there was this television show that happened, I think, in the early two thousands called Iconoclasts, where they would put two um, two icons together in a room. And I remember there was one where Maya Angelou and Dave Chappelle were put together to have a conversation. And I remember Maya, and then Dave Chappelle asked asked her the question about how um, how she deals with with success and with uh, with failure and um, she says if you're gonna if you're gonna ignore all of the the bad things people say about you you have to ignore all the good things they say about you too and she said you know don't don't pick it up don't put it down and uh, I always thought that was really beautiful and so yeah I think there's there's been a tradition at least internally of being happy with when something goes my way, but to not engage with it in a way that um, inflates my own sense of self-worth in the same way that I don't let a bad review, which I've gotten more than a handful (laughs) of personal bad reviews. uh, I don't let those sit on my shoulders for too long. Yeah. I know you do various things, including making films and composing and solo work and drawing and art but was I presume that the string quartet is your main focus or is it that and your solo career and your filmmaking and your cooking how does that work yeah I that's I think that's fair to assume yeah the string quartet is definitely my definitely the big one but I think rather than approaching it um, in a ranking system, I think um, it has to be thought of as a, a sort of overall recipe, 
you know, that it's not, um, that if you make a, everything is a food analogy today, I'm finding, but like, you know, if you make like a, like a beef stew and all you can taste is like just beef, you know, it doesn't (laughs) taste like anything else. There's no sweetness. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no acidity. There's no anything. It just, then you've missed the, you've missed the point, you know? And I think that, um, that, that although this, the string quartet is the star of, of my, of my career, um, it's informed by my solo career and it's informed by my knowledge of, of cooking and, and art and by my, my family and, and, you know, and, and all of that is a balance to make sure that when I show up to any show that I show up as a balanced human being, um, and can, can give my most honest, uh, artistic output I think is is sort of the way that I that I see the balance of my life but so do you does your annual schedule does it is it based around the schedule that's set by the string quartet or like if you have a solo project would that take precedent over what happens with the string quartet well I think the string quartet shows because because my string quartet career is um, further along than my solo career, the, you know, the, the bigger, the bigger you get, the earlier people s- schedule you. So, um, you know, we're booked for things in 2023, you know, and, uh, so that's unavoidable, but if, uh, if someone says you, for instance, the summers are often a free for all because summer festival planning happens much later than the normal season, which is, which correlates with, um, you know, the school season starts in September, ends at the summer. And, um, so like, for instance, if, if I get a solo gig in August, you know, if someone says, can you do your, um, I have a project called Haffy. This is my solo project. If someone says, can you do a Haffy show in August? And we don't, the quartet doesn't have anything. I'll text the quartet and say, is it cool if I block off, August 6th for a halfy show. Uh, and then if the quartet says yes, then I put it in the calendar and it's there, you know? And if for some reason, if like, you know, John Williams is like, will you record my next score (laughs) (laughs) on August 6th, you know, then we have a conversation about it, but they, they have to come to me. Right. And then they have to, they have to ask my permission to get rid of the gig. There's no like quartet comes first get rid of that gig there's there's none of that it's very much uh we we like to to encourage everyone in the quartet to to have a full professional life and a full musical life because anything they learn out on the road uh, they can bring back to the to the to the house and is the quartet and it might be different for each quartet but is a quartet usually a democracy like it is yeah it's one of the only true democracies i know of and it's an even number democracy which makes yeah, it yeah. um intolerable <laughs> because so, even because there's nothing worse than a two two tie because then, then what happens you, then you what do you do what do you do um and, and the, truthfully the thing is is that even if there's a three three one dispute um 
that's still 25% of the group that's that's <laughs> not happy, which is a large percentage. So um, any decision we make, it has to go through our text chain or or in rehearsal, you know, our business meetings that sometimes we don't even take our instruments out of the case. It's just it's just a three hour long business meeting, you know. Um, so it is a yeah, it's an, it's an, it's an astonishing thing, and it and it really it tests the limit of uh, your patience with the democratic system. But but I think that if you have patience and you have respect for your colleagues, I, it it'll it'll get there. It just might be a little bit slower than um, than sort of an executive director being like, "All right, here's what we're gonna do, everyone, and follow suit." Yeah. So, how much did winning the Grammy last year change your your collective lives, or is it still hard to see because? The world is so weird now, but has it changed a great deal? I mean, we were just at the beginning of our victory lap when the world shut down. So yeah, we won in January of 2020. And um, so, I mean, I think that it, it does change. It does change your life. You can, uh, you know, when you're off, when you're off stage, and I've only had this a couple of times um, in the past year, but when you're off stage and someone says Grammy award-winning string quartet coming on in a second, you hear people hold their breath a little bit, you know, that, <laughs> Ooh, you know, that's the same, like best burger in the city feeling, you know, uh, it's that, it's that sense of, um, yeah, that sense of like, Oh, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to like this. This is, this is fun. I'm having a good time. So I wanted to ask you, you mentioned happy. Tell hmm. me about that project. Happy um, is a project that I came up with a few years ago. I had sort of stayed away from solo music. I I really like the the feeling of playing with other humans, of reacting to other people's ideas as um, as my inspiration for for playing music. So. I don't really have a deep connection to the box suites, for instance. Yeah, um, I love them, but I always, I always get sad <laughs> when I play the box suites because I just wish someone else was playing with me. <laughs> you know, like it would be such fun music. T- if that was a duet, it would be so fun. <laughs> you know, and if it could be different every time because your your partner did something different. Um, I think I would feel very different about those. If, you know, the box suites, you know, it says on the manuscript, you know, like six suites for solo cello without, uh, without baseline, without, without a partner, you know? And um, I just wish that wasn't the title. I wish, I wish (laughs) I could have, you know, another cellist or like a, like a harpsichord or like a drummer or, you know, like (laughs) I just wish there could be something else. Um, So, so I really didn't put a whole lot of stock into the solo cello repertoire. And over the years, I, I learned a few and, and um, thought like, oh, maybe it'll be fun to, to put something together. And I was like, okay, well, you know, what can I, what can I play? You know, and I tried to think of what are all the solo cello pieces that I have and, um, 
And I looked at it, you know, it was like some Bach, some, you know, I don't know, some other piece, (laughs) you know, and it was just a hodgepodge. And I was like, why would anyone want to come hear me play this music? I mean, uh, maybe, maybe they just want to hear me play it. That's fine. But like, there's, there's really, there's really no reason that they need to trust me with this program. And then I started to just look inward in terms of like, okay, well, what's like, what story do I want to tell? Because um, to me, to me, the the whole concert experience um, is is all about is all about a story. You know, you you have you know this like beginning, middle, and end. And you know, and when you have people walk into a a space to listen to you play music, you want them to be different when they leave. You know, you want their lives to have shifted in some way. And so, uh, when I when I was thinking about Haffy, I was thinking about okay, well, what, what stories, um, do I feel like I can tell and being a, uh, a non-binary person, a non-binary trans person was, uh, is still today, um, a relatively, um, rare thing in classical music. There, there aren't, there aren't, uh, there aren't that many of us in classical music. And so, um, I think, okay, well, what can I do with, with this? And, um, and thinking about, um, my experience as a, as a non-binary person, I was thinking, okay, maybe I can play other music of, uh, of sort of, of queer people or, or, or trans people or, but I already had another project, Chamber Queer, which was doing that, um, and so I was like, okay, well, that's, that's not quite enough. And, but I, I, I found myself shying away from that aspect for my solo show. And I tried, I was trying to think of like this, this feeling of how I was interacting with my uh, gender identity. Uh, it, it, it suddenly dawned on me that, that I had already figured out all of these things uh, with my racial identity, which I'm half Chinese and I'm and half um, sort of uh, European mix, and um, I grew up not really having a home base, you know, uh, racially speaking. I wasn't white, uh, and I and I wasn't Asian, but um, I found that you know a lot of Asian people saw me as white and a lot of white people saw me as Asian and, and, and there were all sorts of assumptions made and uh, you know, and things like I, 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 when I was young, I didn't really understand that everyone didn't have one set of grandparents they could talk to and one set of grandparents who didn't really understand what you were saying, but they (laughs) loved you anyways, you know, like that, that, that sort of duality um, that was normal to me. And, and so I was thinking about how, yeah, that racial identity and and my relationship to to gender like spoke to each other, and and at the time I didn't really have a very sufficient vocabulary to really ex- explain that, and so I thought, well, why don't I um, make a musical program that that sort of speaks to 
sort of all the different sort of areas of of what makes me me you know and play music from uh asian composers and queer composers and white male composers and you know and you know all sorts of different areas of um what it what it is to be to be me to be you know a happy which is which is always what the way i referred to myself when i was growing up and so that was um and then suddenly the program sort of snapped into place and i felt like i was actually telling a story and i felt that that there was a reason i was telling it other than I am a competent cellist. Was well, it when you mentioned that there aren't many people like you in the classical field? Mm. Was that a difficult thing to um, not come to terms with? But when when you decided that you would make this public, was that mm. difficult? Like, did was it difficult for people to accept you, or did anything change? I I think I was always af- afraid to. Um, to sort of be too honest about my my life because I had a th- good thing going, you know. The quartet was doing well, um, and you know, for a while, I was like, "Well, maybe I'll I'll be out to my friends," and even even out to the quartet. But but you know, when it comes to to, you know, playing a show, I'll put a, you know, I'll put a suit on, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll play the nice, um, you know, I'll be the nice, good old straight cellist, um, <laughs> you know, and I did it for a while and it felt bad. Mm. It actively felt bad. And, um, and you know this is a this is a it's a common it's a common thing um at least in the trans community of this this sense of uh you know this sort of self-perpetuating sort of cycle of of uh you know sort of disliking at least or like the way that you're presenting or or yourself and and sort of blaming it on yourself and, and, and going in a circle. And, um, I think the quartet was, um, very, very supportive of me and sort of always assured me that, um, they would love and respect me no matter what. And, and I think that, I'll never forget that kindness they showed me when, when I came out to them. And, um, and I think I'd, I don't think it's affected my career. (laughs) Maybe it has, but you know, maybe those are the kind of people I don't want to be playing music for. And, and also my, um, how I present, um, has nothing to do with, with how I play the cello, you know, uh, you know, in the same way that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter sort of what the gender makeup of, of any, of any string quartet is, you know, if they're a good quartet, they're a good quartet. Um, and I think that, 
I think it's, I think I'm very fortunate um, as a member of this, uh, this trans uh, community um, that, that I, I have achieved as much as I, I have going into being more public about it, you know? So um, uh, I have a lot of, I have a lot go behind me, you know, a lot of support. Um, and so uh, that is my privilege, like as a, as a musician. And so, um, no, I think everyone, um, yeah. In, in like happy queer news, everybody's been totally nice to me, <laughs> which is, uh, really good. What's nice to say, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to report only good things. Okay. So, Forgive me for my ignorance, but sure. at what point in your life did you think you were different? Because you you said that you you felt that you would have two different races and you weren't sure where home was. And so you're dealing with that immediately based on your background of being half Asian, half European. Mm. Um, and then you're dealing with this where I don't know what age you thought, I don't feel, I feel different than other people. I... I knew that I didn't feel, you know, whatever, whatever this means, but I knew I didn't feel like I was a typical boy when, when as early as um, eight or nine. And that was eight, nine, 10 in that area. It was also the, around the same time I was diagnosed with, um, with ADD or ADHD. And, you know, I, I remember, I remember the, the parent teacher conference where my fifth grade, not, I think it was my fifth grade or fourth grade teacher brought my parents in and, and basically while I was there told them that I had a problem and I needed to be medicated. And, and, as a, as like, just like a kid who just, you know, loved being alive and loved doing stuff. Um, this sense of, oh, I'm, I'm different and it's a problem and I need to take medication about it made me feel very protective of anything that, that made me feel different, you know? So I didn't want to talk about any of these feelings um, on gender identity when I was growing up because, first of all, the the conversation around transness was at a barbaric level when I was a kid. Hmm. You know, uh, you know, just basically anybody who. At, at all was was sort of playing around with gender norms was you know a sissy or a tranny or you know like all of these these things that that you know in the early days of the internet when I would like when I would type in words like what are these feelings I'm having and the internet would come back at me and saying that I was a tranny <laughs> you know I'd be like oh my god uh I, I don't know about you know but like you know like that was it you know and that that was the whole conversation and so I was like, people don't, don't seem to respect or like these people. Um, maybe I'll try to 
I'll try to steer clear of that. Uh, you know, even though there were so many trans people online who who were so kind and open and writing things about about their experience that uh, that was really level headed, but but then saying, you know, but you know, no one in my family will talk to me and, you know, and I lost a partner because of it. And, you know, like there was always a, there was always a, but after something that was helpful to read. And so um, I decided to bury it and to not tell anyone about it um, because I was terrified to lose everything, you know, um, and in the past, in the past 10 years or so, there's been an incredible leap forward in the conversation of queerness and transness. And even, you know, the term non-binary is relatively new and, and the pronoun, the pronouns that I, that I use, they, them, that was, that was, I didn't, um, I didn't want to use they, them for so long because it just seemed like it was too hard um, to implement. It was too much to ask of people. And, um, and so I, uh, but even, even th that, even like people using they, them as, as their pronouns is a very, very recent thing. And we're still sort of in the early days of, of a, if not worldwide, at least nationwide, welcoming of a lot of these uh, queer ideas in terms of um, self-identification. If I was to ask you to define non-binary, sure. like explain to me what that is, would you be able to do that? It's a, I mean, it's a great question, and it's one that I wrestle with a lot. It, and it begins, um, so if I... It, it begins with a with a a question that I think anybody can ask of themselves, not just trans people, not just queer people, but um, if you were uh, without without talking about your genitals, <laughs> explain what makes you a man or a woman. It becomes very difficult to 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 uh, to really suss out what identity is and um and so the way that i um the way that i sort of see it as uh non-binary is i think there are aspects there are aspects I, I i always felt like i fit in more with um with the girls in my class and with you know i i felt like i like all, like a lot of my friends were always girls and a lot of you know things like that and so socially socially that's one aspect of it and uh but and it's funny because because currently um i identify as non-binary but also also trans and so that becomes difficult and i actually don't really personally <laughs> understand what that means because i've already stated that i am i am neither but um but i lean in in the direction of of sort of femininity. And so it, it is, I think that non-binariness is, uh, has a tinge of 
of mind your own business. <laughs> uh, uh, to uh, you know, in a if I'm being cheeky, yeah, yeah. but just sort of like um, what what is it? What is it? Doesn't really matter, you know, what I am because not only am I um, just a chalice, but I'm just a human, and and um, and I I don't want to be roped in socially to to um, to that any sort of particular identity, but my but that sort of changes for me uh, a lot, um, and I th- also think that the term non-binary was a sort of safe haven for me as I was um, sort of embracing my queerness, just sort of saying like, you know, uh, I don't want to talk about it. It, you know, in, in, in any particular way, you know, it's a, it, it, it can be an end zone for, for people, or it can be just sort of a, a way of, uh, just, you know, being ambiguous and, and, and seeing the world from, uh, from a more central place, which is very, very much the, the string quartet, the string quartet way, right. You know, I, you know, the, the, the baseline, the baseline is nothing without the melody and the melody is nothing without the baseline. You know, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't just play the cello part to something and just hope for the best for anyone. It's, it's a com it's a, it's a push and pull. So, well, I really appreciate you talking about this because I, it's just something I know very little about. I'm just going to ask you one more question about this. So when you tell your quartet mates that this is how you're feeling and they, they tell you they support you, and then you make the decision to become more yourself. Mm. Do you know who that person is? Like, I don't know how much it's hidden that I don't know if you're allowed to see. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you spent years not really showing that side, does that side come out in any way in your own time? And do you, when you say, okay, this is this is who I am, do you know who that person is, how that person looks and dresses and where's their hair and yeah i think um you know i think that for a while uh for a while i lived in a studio apartment by myself this was before i came out and uh i noticed that my house attire was different from my everyday attire <laughs> right uh now my house attire is the same as my everyday attire uh, attire so uh I, I, I am not anybody new now. <laughs> the The person I am is now the people now the person that everyone is is seeing right uh, on the stage and on the street. So uh, I have remained stationary, but perceptions have perceptions have have changed. People have have see me at a different angle. People see me in a, a and uh, but I have remained stationary. If that makes any sense, that makes total sense. Do, do you think your playing is any different because of it? Absolutely, because not. of your own. No, no. But I mean, just just your own comfort zone mm. and who you are. Like, does that free up anything, or as oh. a player? Yeah, I mean, I I guess yes. I guess the the that that feel. Well, the th- here's the thing about when I play the cello. Um, that when I when I get on stage and from the moment I play my first note to when I finish, uh, I'm in a I'm in a state of of hibernation, uh, and so I I am no I am no longer 
there. I, I, I am, I am only, uh, uh, I'm only a, a set of human reactions and desires. And so I, I don't, the, the, what I'm, what I'm wearing or how I'm presenting is not entering into, uh, into my, my, my playing other than I learned early on that, that, um, I don't like wearing heels while I, while I play the cello because <laughs> it puts my knees higher. That, that sucks. Oh yeah. Um, so other than that, um, there's not really a, um, no, I mean, I, I think the only thing is, uh, you know, backstage when I'm in my dressing room, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't dislike, I don't dislike, uh, sort of the reflection as, as, as much as I used to. And so I guess I'm in a better mood when I go on stage, which is huge. Um, yeah, to, to be in a good, to be in a good space, walking on stage is a gift. And what has surprised you the most about this whole experience? Um, I think, yeah, I think that, yeah, what I was saying before that, that, um, that I, I didn't immediately sort of lose everything. And, and, and I was still, I was still a child's people wanted to hear and, uh, I was still lovable and I was still, um, I was still well-regarded in the industry that, that didn't, that I don't think has changed. I, I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared for a, for as uh, sort of seamless a, a transition as I have. And also I have, I never did like a big social media. Hey, everyone, here's this thing you should know about me that uh, that never happened. Um, it's all, it's all happened internally and, and other people have, have, uh, have witnessed it happen over, over the, over the course of time. But, um, everybody's been on the same, everybody's been on the same journey as I have right. uh, without, without ever having to, um, explain myself to anyone because it is nobody else's business. You know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I do appreciate you talking to me about it because um, they are these are difficult conversations to have when you feel like you don't have an adequate vocabulary. And I would much rather people ask me questions because otherwise, otherwise, you know, we're not we're not talking to each other, and that's that's not that's not fun. You just did, you, did the quartet just um, sign with Sony Classical? Yeah, we just signed with Sony for a multi a multi record deal. Yeah, that's a big deal, is it not? We're we're very <laughs> excited about it. Um, it has uh, it's been in the works for uh, over a year now, and uh, it's been really cool. Every record we've ever done leading up to this point has been just a conversation between the four of us about what we wanted to do. So whether that was, you know, it seemed for our debut album, it was like we had this um, John Adams quartet that we loved 
And we were one of the only quartets who had learned it. It was just us in the St. Lawrence and we knew we wanted to record it. Um, and it sort of made sense to us to combine it with his other works. And, you know, so like it just sort of, we were in the right place at the right time for that. And, and, you know, our seven last words, Haydn's seven last words was just because we wanted to do it, you know, and, and, you know, other composers sort of approaching us to record their works or, we had a relationship with Caroline. We're like, you know what? The the concerts that we play that are all Caroline's music, people have a good time at that, at those concerts. So like, why don't we put that on a disc? You know, that that kind of thing. And it, But it's just been the, oh, it's always just been the four of us, you know? So um, to have a company like Sony to bounce ideas off of uh, has forced us to to think of our records in a slightly different light, you know, and um, think about um, different aspects of, of what makes a compelling recording. And also they're just, they're just, it's a super cool company to have behind you, you know, for sure. I have, uh, you know, and I have, you know, probably like, I probably close to 60 recordings of the Dvorak cello concerto. And I probably, you know, 25 of them are on Sony, you know, like that kind of thing. It's, you know, and uh, it's just cool to, to, to chat with, with a company like that. And they, we come up with ideas that we would have probably never come up with uh, if it weren't for, if it weren't for these conversations. And, um, you know, also it's helpful not fronting $20,000 you know, to, to, to make a recording, um, not knowing if you'll ever get the money back. It's, 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 uh, it's cool to just have, a, a sort of system set up in place. And so, but it's, it's huge and, uh, it's humbling to be, to be on, on the label. So when you, yeah. when you have a multi, multi-record deal, do you know what the next few albums are going to be? Or is it just like, does it work that way? Or do you know what the next album is going to be? And then you work towards. We're them. starting. We're starting with two albums, so we have recorded both of those albums at this point. Oh, okay. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to see how they do, um, and then uh, we'll talk about more down the line. I think that's sort of how it's going, and uh, we're really excited about both of them, and the albums couldn't be more different <laughs> sorry does this include the one that's coming out in july with his electronic music that's that's the first one that's coming out yes okay it's called real life Can you talk about that a little bit yeah uh, the album is called real life and um it's all um electronic music from electronic uh, producers and composers like uh square pusher and daedalus and Lewis Cole and and, uh, and a bunch of other people uh, who are making sort of uh, really really interesting Flying Lotus like making really like interesting uh, quirky like cool music and um, so what we did was basically found uh, the music we wanted to present um, deconstruct it into sounds that a string quartet could make and then re-record it and blow those sounds out. 
Uh, so sometimes we have, you know, 30 tracks of ourselves on, on something and, um, and using our instruments like percussion and, um, and making weird sounds to, to sample and throwing different, um, effects. I had a, I had a microphone on my cello that was going through a bass pedal. So everything that I played, we had the option to pull out an octave below, um, and put it in if we wanted to. Um, which was really fun. And, you know, it, and it's a, it's a series of things that are straight up covers. Like, uh, like the, the first single that came out is a track called Electric Powwow Drum by the Hallucination, who used to be called A Tribe Called Red, um, a First Nation uh, ensemble or yeah, electronic band from Canada. And that was... That was something that I heard early on in the pandemic. I went over to a friend's house, not a friend's house, friend's sidewalk. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he put on he put on the, um, this track and I was like, oh my God. And this was back when we were like putting together our album list. And uh, I was like, this needs to go on the album. And I went home and I, I tried to figure out how all the noises were made and um and threw this together so things like that um and uh but there are also uh new pieces um uh square pusher uh wrote us a string quartet a drum that had a uh effects track on it and um Daedalus wrote us something new and 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 so there's a there's a there's a sort of a dialogue of uh of the electronic world and the classical world that, that sort of happened all in real time and it was all mushed up together. And, um, I cautiously really like the album. (laughs) And so, uh, I, I I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be fun. I think people are going to like it. Um, uh, but you know, like, you know, like with, uh, with competitions, you never know, you know, some people will, will love it. Some people will hate it. I'm sure. Um, but those are all of my favorite, all my favorite things. Well, that first single was, I heard it, and it's quite interesting, quite different. Very, very different than anything we've done before. Yeah. Um, and, and, but also like, that's one track on the album that couldn't be more different than, um, for instance, like the Flying Lotus Suite that, that Nate put together um, of three, of three Flying Lotus songs. I mean, you, you know, it, like it's, it's very much a, for the classical world, it's 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 like a, a big new statement. But I think for the electronic world, um, these are very disparate worlds that we've all thrown together. Um, um, and I, I'm I'm super excited about it. And then the next album that we have um, is going to be um, Philip Glass, Arvo Pärt, and then Renaissance music. Wow. So a much a much sort of different texture and speed. So the electronic stuff, can you perform that live? Yes, um, I think uh, much like any band who records the album first and then tours it, <laughs> uh, you figure out what the live version is. Right. Right. So we're talking about how we're going to perform the album this summer. Um, we're talking about maybe having some. Uh, so uh, some sort of like effect pedals that we will be controlling ourselves, uh, possibility of having drummers play with us, um, having, you know, the possibility of a backup track to sort of tour with, 
um, all these things. Um, and some of the stuff we can we can play straight up acoustic. There's an Anna Mueller, a cellist composer, Anna Mueller, who um, we played one of her works, and uh, it works beautifully as an acoustic string quartet piece. And the Flying Lotus Suite also we've performed um, acoustically as well, and it um, sort of rips the roof off the house, like that kind of <laughs> that kind of music. It's really fun. Wow, I'm looking forward to hearing it. And Andrew, thank you so much for doing this. I, I know I met you eight years ago, and you made an impression on me. And appreciate you taking the time again. Well, thank you for having me, and it's been a really nice conversation. This has been super cool. Thanks.